0: Good morning. As Sandra said, my name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here at Church 21, and it's a privilege of mine to be able to speak to you this morning from part of our series that we're doing on "We Are Leaders." It's a series that we started in early in the year, and we've been interspersing, uh, along with our series on the Gospel of John, our series called "Believe." So we also took a little break for from both of those series for the month of September as we looked at and took an in-depth look at how the gospel uh, speaks to the topic of sex. And so we thought it would be a good time to fit in a, at least a message on parenting uh, before we jump back into the um, series on John. So the hope today is that we would see and learn what it looks like to live out as part of our identity in Jesus Christ at church 21 we're going to talk a lot about Jesus and about us finding our identity in him and as we've looked through this series we had we had actually had a message in June uh, from the last part uh, the last identity uh, in our in our uh, training program which is we are coaches and the idea there is that it's not enough, it's not a complete picture of what it means to follow Jesus, just to have a personal relationship with Him, it's somehow an exclusion of other people, somehow outside of community. But rather, we have a personal relationship with Him and we follow Him, but we also have a role to play uh, with the greater community, with each other. And so the idea is that we come alongside each other. So you're going to hear more about that this morning as well, as we talk about... A different aspect than we talked about previously, and this one, the idea of spiritual parenting. Okay, so parenting is a big deal. Uh, All of us have experience at some level, and and we want to start there this morning. So, what does it mean to parent? The Oxford Dictionary wasn't a whole lot of help. It gave me two options, a noun, a parent, is a father or mother. And the verb, which was what I was looking for, what does it mean, to parent? It said to be or act like a father or mother. So the the helpful part of that is that we see that there is an actual strong sense of something implied in that, that when we say father or mother, we actually have certain things that come to mind. But the question for us to think about today is what are those things? So what comes to mind? So why don't you help me with that? just call it out. What are some things that parents do or should do or you've seen parents do? Help me out. What, what does it mean to parent? Provide. Provide. Encourage. Encourage. Love. Teach. Teach. Love. Love. Okay, good. Let's look at a, a definition that uh, I saw on Wikipedia which was a little more helpful than the Oxford Dictionary definition. Parenting or child-rearing... "...is the process of promoting and supporting the physical, emotional, social, and intellectual development of a child from infancy to adulthood. Parenting refers to the aspects of raising a child aside from the biological relationship." So that, that's pretty good. That's a pretty well-rounded definition. Uh, you may look at that and see something that you'd like to add to that, but that's a good starting point. And I think it's important that we note that it says aside from the biological relationship. So yes, there is a biological relationship most of the time, but we recognize that the act of parenting is something that can be done with or without the biological relationship being in place. I want to suggest uh, just a general way of, of wrapping that definition up into just a few words. That the idea here, where in the definition from Wikipedia it says from infant infancy to adulthood, I'd like to suggest that parenting is moving is moving people, leading people to maturity, and that's going to be helpful because when we look at spiritual parenting, um, we're going to define that in light of the general concept of parenting. But let me ask you, how do you feel that parenting? Is going, how do you feel that we as a society, as a culture, are doing uh, in terms of parenting? In other words, what are the, the type of effects that we see not just in parents, but in children, and not just in young children, but in adult children? Do we think that we're succeeding? Do we think that we're successful as parents in our culture? I saw an article in Psychology Today this past week by a a man named Leon Seltzer. And the title of the article is, Did You Get the Parental Guidance You Needed Growing Up? And the underlying tone is that that's being called into question more and more frequently. That we're looking around us at the, the things that we're dealing with, the things that are surfacing in our own personal lives and experiences and relationships, and also in, in the world as a whole, and we're saying something's not right. And we're trying to get to the root of that. And a big part of that is if there's problems with people today, maybe those problems started when those people were younger. Maybe those parent problems started with the parental process. That The world, this, the sense is that the world is broken, that there's a brokenness that's apparent. Not just to those who would say that from a standpoint of faith, but that everyone can look around and see that we're missing something that's pretty fundamental. So when you think about your own life, your own experience of having been parented, for those of you who are actively involved or have been actively involved in parenting others, where do you see the gaps? Where is the pain surfacing? Because oftentimes those two things go together. Sure, on one hand, we've learned how to functionally parent and functionally survive in society. One of the things that parents do for children is to provide food, to teach them how to eat on their own, and then as children grow, to teach them how to cook and prepare their own food. So we've learned practical things like that, and yet we don't even know how to view food. Some of us are drawn to it, some of us worship it, some of us are scared of it. We've learned how to do practical things like get a job and earn money. And yet we have, in some cases, deplorable working conditions. We have addictions to work, workaholism. We have uh, mistreatment of of laborers. And we have a whole lot of uh, really unhealthy things that surround the workplace. And we've learned how to, to socialize. We've learned how to communicate but it may have become rather utilitarian. In other words, we do what we do in order to get by, but do we really have a healthy society in which there's mutual respect and where people are able to live in peace socially with each other? We recognize that something is missing and I think we're not being honest with ourselves as a culture as to what that thing is. Or maybe, if we think about it, we realize what it might be, but we don't want to go there because of the implications. So what I wanted to tell you this morning is that the Bible speaks to the gaps that we see. It offers us a solution to our parenting questions. Not just the, I'm a parent, how do I parent, the step-by-step, the real practical stuff, but the bigger questions, too, of what happens when a generation of people isn't parented well. It offers us a solution, a solution that is good news not only to parents, again, but to all people at all stages who have to deal with the brokenness of our world day in and day out. So let's look at the definition for spiritual parenting. If parenting is intentionally leading someone to maturity, then spiritual parenting is intentionally leading someone to spiritual Maturity. We're going to take a look at the passage that Sandra read for us this morning from Deuteronomy. And let me just say that um, if you you'll be able to follow these passages that we have this morning on the screen, there's going to be quite a few of them. If you have a, a Bible, it's probably easier just to read on the screen this morning. But if you have a Bible, I would recommend going back through them at home. If you'd like to get a list of all the passages that we encounter this morning. I'd be glad to give you a list. If you need a Bible and you don't have one, see someone at our greeting table or someone in a blue shirt, they'd be happy to give you one. We look to the Bible at Church 21 as an authority and as the revelation of the good news of Jesus. And so we strongly encourage that you look to the Bible and, as we're encouraged in the Bible, that you take the things that you hear when, when we're, when we're proclaim, proclaiming the gospel. And you check them and you learn them and they become yours. So we're gonna, we're, just let me set the, the setting for you. This is Moses who has received the law of God and he's given it to the people of Israel. This is about between 3,000 and 4,000 years ago. And they're about to go into the land that God has promised them, and Moses has laid out the law for them again, and he's calling them to it, and he summarizes all this this massive law that God's given, that covers both big concept things and small details of the day to day, and this is how he summarizes it. And this this particular passage, it's called the Shema. It's very popular even to this day. It was popular in Jesus' day. Um, it was it's popular even to this day among the Jews because of its power and its place in the scripture. So listen again to it, if you will. Moses says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house When you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Fast forward from the time that Moses gave this law to the people of Israel to the time that Jesus comes. And a a teacher of the law comes to Jesus and says, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? This is in Matthew 22. There you go. And Jesus replies, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And he adds, a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So in Jesus' day, this was well established that the most important thing that people could do, that people in the nation of Israel could do would be to love the Lord their God with all their heart and all their soul. But if we go back and look at what the second part of that original passage said, it's the part where it gets passed on. It's the paradigm that God's given us for spiritual parenting. He says, here's what you do, and then here's what you do with it. Love God with everything you've got and teach your children, teach your kids, to do the same. Sounds easy enough, right? It's, if we summarize the whole law, Jesus said all of the, the law and the prophets, all of the, the Torah and the everything that was written, which if, you, if we had a, a physical Bible, it's about three quarters of the Bible. He says all of that, up to the point where Jesus is saying this, all of that rest on this one thing. Just love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength So then why doesn't it work? Why? Why would we not have Why would it not work if we were implementing that? Well, that's just it. We we aren't implementing it. We're not let's, the first the first problem that we have is that we're not perfect children. We don't want to listen. We don't want to obey. We don't want to submit. Would you say that's true? Those of you who have children, would that be true of your children? Those of you who are children, is that true? Those of you who have to remember back a longer time to the point when you were children at home, would you say that's true? There's something inside of us that just doesn't want to comply. There's something inside of us that doesn't want to do what we're told, regardless of the fact whether it's a good thing or not a good thing that we're being instructed in or what we're told to do. And when we don't obey, that leads to strife. It leads to conflict and contention in a relationship. It leads to rebellion, oftentimes. Turning to other things in place of the proper authority, in, terms of, in, in place of the proper instruction that we receive from our parents. Sometimes children turn to addictions and or sometimes they, they run away uh, from, from the authority because they don't want to submit. But that disobedience is one of the reasons that this command that God has given doesn't work. We are not perfect children. This goes beyond just the parental relationship within the family. We oftentimes don't want to comply in the the bigger social setting as well. We don't like to be told what to do. We find fault in everything that, whether it's laws or instructions, whether it's in the workplace or the school environment or just society in general, we tend to buck up against it. The second thing, the second reason that this doesn't work well is that we're not perfect parents. We don't really want to do the hard work of parenting all the time. Sometimes we do. Sometimes we, we get excited, we get motivated, we, we really want to try hard. We love our children. We love people in general. We want to be the type of parents that we should be. But at the end of the day, protect particularly perhaps when our children are not wanting to comply, not wanting to obey, not wanting to submit, we find it hard to be good parents. Sometimes when there's issues in parenting, it drives a, a couple apart. Sometimes parenting challenges lead to divorce. Sometimes parenting challenges lead to the same type of things that leads to in children, some, turning to substances or turning to alcohol, for example. So alcoholism, substance abuse, pornography, which we looked at two weeks ago, sometimes child abuse, neglect, absenteeism, abdicating our authority because it's just it's hard or we're not seeing the results that we'd like to see. Sometimes it leads to indulgence. We, we just give whatever it is, whatever, whatever we can give just to pacify our children so that they leave us alone or so that they stop causing that strife in our lives. Sometimes the situation comes to a point where anger builds up and it turns into a situation of rage. Sometimes it turns into depression. The article in Psychology Today, talked about the connections between growing up in an environment, any number of these environments, whether there was substance abuse present, whether there was a, a parent who struggled with rage or depression, that that has a, a direct impact on that child as the child grows into an adult. And oftentimes we don't even see what it is that, that happened to us that that shaped us in that way, and yet... We manifest those things, and they affect not only our lives, but they affect the lives of everyone around us. And so we have the situation that we have. We look around, we read the news, we see social media, we we see horrible things, very broken things, happening in people's personal lives and their hearts. But it doesn't stop there, and we know this, because we are part of a global community. And the things that are on the inside find their way outside. They manifest. They show up. And the brokenness of others is inescapable. We, we can't get around it. And so what are we left with? We have a standard. We've been told what it takes to do this well. That if we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and just pass that on to our children, everything will go well. That's true, and yet that's not what we find. And we know, if you've come out and you've been here before, if you've been part of Church 21, you know what the answer is going to be. You know what the solution is going to be, or rather, you know who the solution is going to be. Jesus... Christ Jesus, the son of God, Jesus is the solution to our parenting problem. He's also the solution to our, uh, the fact that we're imperfect children. So now I want to tell you how in fact Jesus is the solution. Jesus himself was a perfect child. He modeled what it looks like to love God with the whole heart. I was really I was struck yesterday as I went through the Gospel of John and I highly recommend doing this. Read through the Gospel of John and look at the way that Jesus describes his relationship with his Father. Look at the things that he says about his Father. He lived a perfect life without sin. A perfect life of submission, obedience, and trust. Even when it was hard. So, as we know, after Jesus' ministry, Jesus was arrested by the Jewish leaders. And just before that, he knew what was coming. And he, faced, he was facing a very difficult time. And he was... We see in Luke chapter 22, verse 42, Jesus is at a really difficult time. He knows what's coming, it's in a trial. So I'm saying this because we could think that perhaps it was just easier for Jesus. Perhaps Jesus just modeled the perfect life of a perfect child because it was easier. He didn't face the struggles. But we see this picture of Jesus. Praying, communicating to this father, knowing what's coming, knowing he's about to be arrested, knowing for sure he's about to be killed. And he says, Father, if you're willing to take this cup from me, take it. But nevertheless, not my will, not what I want, but your will be done. That's a picture of a perfectly submissive son. Peter says, in chapter 2, verse 22 of 1 Peter about Jesus, that he committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Think how much different the world would be if as as children, in our role as children, whether it's in the home or or in the bigger uh, social setting, if when people reviled us, whether siblings or co-workers, classmates, or people in general, if we didn't revile in return, if when people hurt us, we didn't respond in kind, but if instead we just entrusted ourselves to our Father, to our parents, to protect us, and knowing and. In, our, in the case of our Heavenly Father, that he knows everything that's going on. He's aware of it. And he will let nothing happen to us that is not part of his plan. So Jesus modeled the life of the perfect child and the perfect relationship to his father. Jesus was also a perfect parent. Now, this may come as a surprise. You may say, well, oh, I didn't know Jesus had children. He didn't. Let's be clear. I don't want anything uh, strange to come out of this teaching this morning. Jesus was a perfect parent. How is that? Well, I'll tell you, because not only did Jesus live a perfect life, and Jesus could have said about the passage in Deuteronomy, that doesn't apply to me. It's not up to me to go and, and parent someone else. He could have looked out and said, about those parents that were failing, that were not perfect. He could have looked at them and and pointed the finger and said, you're not doing a very good job. Well, that's easy to say for someone who doesn't have any children, right? But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus took on the role of a parent himself. And he went and he found and chose 12 young men. And he called them to be with him just like a parent would do with their own children. And he walked with them and he lived with them and he taught them and he showed them perfectly the love of the father and how to love the father. So he was a perfect spiritual father, showing, teaching, correcting, rebuking, leading this group of young people how to love God with all their heart. And toward the end of Jesus' ministry, he prays a prayer. In fact, it's, it's shortly before his death, the day before he died. He prays a prayer, and this is truly the, a, a prayer of the Lord. If you look in John 17, the whole chapter is just him speaking with his heavenly father. And he's talking, and he's sharing the things that he's done for the disciples, the children, the children, the, young, uh, children, the young, young men in particular, although there were many who followed him and learned from him, but this group in particular that he had been given. And I just want to highlight a few things from that prayer that reflect the type of parent that Jesus was with the children that he invested in. He says, I have manifested your name to those you gave me out of the world. I gave them the word that you gave me. I pray for them. And I pray for them that they may be one, even as we are one, that my relationship with those that I'm parenting would be the same as my relationship with, with you, Father. And he says, I, as you sent me into the world, I'm sending them. So do you see, Jesus is taking the things that he received from his heavenly father, which are perfect in every way, and his response to his heavenly father, which is perfect in every way, and he's passing them on to a new generation. He says, I do not ask only for these, speaking of the 12, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So Jesus is saying, this is is my prayer, that the ones that I've invested in, the ones that I've taught, the ones that I've shown, the ones that I've labored with and spent my time with day in and day out, the ones that I had to to put up with, the ones that I had to, to wrestle with, the ones that I had to be patient with, that they would know the unity and the love and the loving relationship that I have with you and that they would be part of that. That they could experience that, Father, just as you and I experience. And not only that, but that they would then go and do the same thing with other people. That those would each go and find people just like I did. Not just biological children, but as Jesus did, that they would go beyond that. That they would find others and that they would invest their lives and pour themselves out so that what the Father gave to the Son is passed on personally to the next generation. See, Jesus has succeeded where we have not. We look at the ways that we have not been the perfect children. We look at the ways that we have not been a perfect parent. We see that Israel, the nation of Israel, the people of God, who he gave his law to, who had every reason and everything going for them that they could obey it. They had seen so much of the power of God displayed, and yet they found it impossible. In Jeremiah 9, I don't know if I, I might have gone out of order. You find Jeremiah 9. In Jeremiah 9, the Lord, or the, the Lord says, Because they have forsaken me, speaking of these people, his children, the children of Israel, they have forsaken my law that I set before them. They have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it. But have stubbornly followed their own heart. And they have gone after the, the Baals, which in that day were the, the idols, as their fathers taught them. So what, what he's saying is that they, they went off track because their fathers taught them to go off track. They they followed idols and they served idols instead of the living God, because their their fathers and their mothers led them to do that. And we don't have Baals today, but we certainly have idols we certainly have those objects and those ideals that we would much rather pursue than to pursue the living God. And when we follow those things, we teach our children to follow the same things. And so it should be of no surprise to us that just as the nation of Israel went off track, that the nation of Canada has also gone off track and that the province of Quebec has also gone off track because we've taken our mind off the things that God has given us and we've gone elsewhere and as a culture we've reinforced this that it's okay that it's normal we we have we've as we saw in the beginning we've defined parenting and parental responsibility in a way that doesn't include the Lord God Think about it. Think about our culture. How much of our culture today is defined by the pursuit of God with all our heart and all our mind and all our strength? And so we've reinforced that idea that is there in each individual heart as a culture so that it's harder to pursue God and it's easier to run from him. And to the extent that we buy into that, our children are going to find it much easier to buy into that as well. But it doesn't end there. Jesus was much more than an example. And this is very important, actually. We could look at Jesus' life and say, look, Jesus was an example. Just be like him. But the problem is that we can no more just be like Jesus in our own strength than we could keep that law that we looked at in Deuteronomy in our own strength. And so the gospel, the good news, is the fact that we don't have to do that in our own strength. And it doesn't end badly. Jesus, being the perfect child, being the perfect parent, offered us the most amazing exchange ever. He offered to take his perfection and give it to us and to take our imperfection on himself and to do so to his death on the cross. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 says that while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus looked at us and our imperfection and with the perfect love of the Father moving through him, willingly, joyfully, the scripture says, went to the cross and took our punishment on himself so that we wouldn't have to bear that. And it didn't stop with the death on the cross. Romans eight eleven tells us that if the spirit of him who raised jesus from the dead dwells in you he raised jesus from the dead and if that same spirit dwells in us who raised jesus christ from the dead that he will also give life to our mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you so jesus taking on our problem our struggle our imperfection the thing that the one thing that we were responsible for before God, and would justly have deserved His punishment in death, and Jesus took that from us. And He offered us instead a way to experience true life and eternal life, if we would just repent and believe in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. What does it mean to repent? It's simply a turning from the things that we're pursuing from those rebellious hearts that don't want to submit, that don't want to comply, that don't want to listen, that want to go our own ways, from those rebellious hearts as parents that don't want to do the hard work, that still want to live for ourselves, not for our spouse, not for our children, not for other people, that we turn away from those things and we turn to God and we say, God, I'm just being honest with you and confessing before you what you already know to be true, that I'm not perfect. And to to go a step further than our culture, which would say, yes, we're not perfect, and that's okay, to say that, no, in God's culture, perfection is actually the standard. And that by repenting and trusting in Jesus, we come into a union with Jesus where we take on his perfection, and that imperfection is done away with. And as John tells us in 1 John, or in, excuse me, in John chapter one, verse 12, "To all those who receive him, even to those who believe in His name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God." In John chapter three, Jesus is talking with a teacher of Israel, Nicodemus. And he tells them about this new birth, about being born again. That's what we're talking about. That we have a second chance that Jesus has given us to do the the child thing again, to do the parent thing again, that, that he's calling us to turn from the ways that we've done it on our own and to turn and come and do it his way. And that he will send his spirit when we do believe to work through us and in us to transform our hearts and cleanse us so that we can Actually, have the power to live like Jesus, brothers and sisters. It doesn't stop there. this This whole, the whole Christian idea, it's not just checking a box. I said a prayer. I believe now. I'm now. I'm a Christian. Now I go back to doing my thing. Now I go back to my life. The scripture is very clear that. This spiritual new birth is literally a new birth. It's meant to give rise to a whole new life. It's an eternal life, but it's a life that starts at the moment that we believe. And so what we're called to is a process of growth, spiritual growth in faith toward spiritual maturity in Jesus. Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, and he said, In light of Jesus' victory over death, In light of Jesus' victory over sin, he came and gave gifts to the church, gifts that are going to help to strengthen the church and grow the church. He mentioned several there, apostles in chapter 4, verse 11, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Why did he give them? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. And here's where it touches down. For building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith, And of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. The purpose behind what God's doing in the church is that we might all grow up into the fullness of Christ. So that we might grow to be that picture of Jesus that we actually see in the scripture a perfect child, perfect parent, loving other people, selflessly giving ourselves for other people, so that they might have the same experience of love with our Heavenly Father that Jesus had. The Apostle Paul put this into practice with the people that he led in the gospel. And he, he talks to one church in particular. And, the church in Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians 4, 14, he says this, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, as far as we know, Paul wasn't married, didn't have his own children, but he's taken on, Many, many, mostly probably adults, as his own. He says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. So we see that Paul has done this, he's followed the same path as the other disciples that Jesus had spent time and invested in and we see the same thing in all of them, that they, they went out and they did the same thing. They showed the love of the Father and they, they spoke of the things that they had been given by the Father. And they called people to those same things. And they, one of the things that they called them to was to, to take it and do the same thing again. When we say that Jesus made disciples, he was with disciples, we see a life of, of pouring out and making people followers of him. And then we see the apostles and Paul do the same thing. And it's called, we call it disciple-making. Disciple-making is spiritual parenting. It's coming alongside people who have already been parented. They may be even older than we are. But if they haven't grown spiritually, if they haven't been given spiritual birth and spiritual growth to maturity to the point where they're able to reproduce in others, then it's a privilege that we have to walk in that. As we ourselves grow in maturity, we, we pass on what we've been given, the love of the Father, so that many, 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 many people might know him. We look at that same letter that Paul wrote to the church in, in Corinth in chapter 6, verse 9. I think it's a helpful reminder to realize that this is not um, an easy situation. An easy The church was undergoing a lot of things. If you read through the book of 1 Corinthians, you'll see that there was Some really nasty, messed up stuff going on in the church. But I think it's a good reminder to us that this is what people were like before Paul came with the good good news of Jesus, before Paul came and did that hard work. That in Colossians, he says, I labored so hard, and not me, but all the work of Christ that works through me so that I might present you mature in Christ. And In Corinthians, this is what he says, he says, Or do you not know? This is the same ones that he's calling his beloved children. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. And friends, this is what we see. We look around and we see this characteristic of our people, this characteristic of our friends. We see some of these very things in ourselves. But he's calling us to him to repent and believe. And when we are, we are washed. And this is our desire for other people, that we might share the good news with them so that they might be washed and regenerated and transformed according to the power of the spirit of our God. So that they might grow up and one day take on the same mantle that Paul and the others took on, the same mantle that we take on to become spiritual parents in the lives of those who need to be parented. I know a young man named Brian, a university student, who had grown in maturity in Christ to the point where he was acting like an older brother to many of his fellow students. And he met a kid at a party one night that he had hosted. And this kid was looking for satisfaction that only God could offer, but he was looking in all the wrong places. And Brian started spending more intentional time with him to show him what it looks like to live out a relationship with his Heavenly Father. Brian showed him the love of God and he taught him how to live according to the Spirit. Brian's friends became his friends. They prayed together, they read the Bible together, they had a lot of fun together, they talked to a lot of people about Jesus together. It was very real. Brian was passing on the things that he had received to his friend. That was in 1997. And over the last 20 years, I've had the opportunities to do a lot of the same things that Brian did with me with a lot of people in a lot of places. And I'm a living fruit today of the work that Brian did, living out his identity in Christ as a spiritual parent, as a spiritual father, even though he was 21 years old at the time. This is what we're called to, not to be rebellious children, not to be wayward parents, to return to the living God, and to not be satisfied to just be children and infants and stay spiritual infants but to grow up and to mature as the people of God, putting God's glory on display in our lives and passing on the love that he's given us, the things that he's shown us and delivered to us for the sake of passing them on to others. Some practical things that it looks like. We have a a training program that we do in Church 21. It's called the, the Leaders Program. And the whole purpose of that is that we might learn to walk in our identities that Christ has given us and that we might help others to walk in those same identities. So what does it look like to be family? How do we really live and treat each other like brothers and sisters? What does it look like to be stewards, to take the things that God has given us, money, time, and to invest them because he's given them to us for a purpose? What does it look like to be the light of the world? To pursue people, broken people, living in darkness, and to take on their mess that they bring for the sake of showing them light so that they might truly know the living God. What does it, look, what does it mean to be servants? To say, I'm not the most important person in the world and to lay our lives down to serve others because that's what Jesus has done for us. What does it mean to live by the Spirit? And how do we walk by the Spirit and the day-to-day things of life that seem so baffling sometimes? And what does it look like to speak good news, to be messengers with truly good news? What does it look like to introduce people to Jesus? And then finally, what does it mean to coach or to come alongside someone and help them to get where they're going when it comes to following Jesus. What does it look like to spiritually parent people who have not been spiritually parented or to help someone who has been, but to help them grow to that next step in maturity so that our goal might come in line with God's goal, that in his son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of his spirit, that we might all grow up into that fullness of Christ and put that on display for a watching world to see. This is about what we're, this is what we're about in Church 21. And so if that's something that excites you, that's something that you want to grow in, if you said, I, I'm done sitting still in my faith, I want to grow, and I want to be that guy or that girl or that woman or that man that helps someone else take the steps, just like Brian, my friend Brian helped me, I want to be that person for someone else. If that's your desire, if that's your goal, come talk to, talk to me today, talk to one of our pastors, talk to one of, our, one of the folks with the blue shirts with the question mark, talk to your city group leader. Let them know, this is something that God's showing me I need to do, I want to do. I realize that it's what I'm actually called to. It's who I am. We need to experience the love of the Father first and foremost as his children. We need to not stay as children, but to grow up in Christ. And we need to come alongside others so that they too might do the same thing. And we can't do it on our own, but we can do it in the power of the Spirit because of the person and work of Jesus. Would you pray with me? And Let me ask the worship team to come up. Dear Father, what a privilege it is to pray to you. And I'm deeply stirred in my soul this weekend as I've just taken a long, close look at how Jesus spoke to you and how he prayed to you with passion, with love. And I long for that, Lord. I want that to be my experience as well. I want to be able to speak to you so perfectly, so closely, to know you for who you are. I want to love you with my whole heart and mind and strength. And I long, Lord, for everyone here to be able to say the same things. And that we as a church might be a church of people who take this vision and live it out in the city. So this city of Montreal might become a city of people who love the Lord, their God, with all their heart, soul, and mind, and strength. And that it wouldn't stop there. That this would go throughout Quebec, throughout Canada, and it still wouldn't stop. Lord, that you would bring many, many, many people to be your children, to raise them up and to include them in the work that you're doing. In the name of Jesus, for your glory. Amen.